Well, this morning we find ourselves, uh, like I said earlier, in week four of our six-week series on the attributes of God. And if you are just joining us, uh, we've been studying these attributes, these characteristics, these traits of God in order to better know and to better understand who God is and what he's like. If we remember, uh, man, four weeks ago now, three weeks, four weeks ago, we began with the holiness of God. Do we remember that? We remember that far back. We reminded that God is not like us, that in his holiness he's altogether different. He is distinct. He's set apart in moral purity and in beauty and in power and in everything. And then the next week after that, we looked at the knowledge of God. We considered how God not only knows everything about everything, but he is also present everywhere, in all places, at all times. The theological terms here is he is omniscient and omnipresent. Last week, we considered the sovereignty of God and how God is in ultimate control over everyone and everything in his universe. And while this may be above our pay grade and we may not fully be able to comprehend it, God's sovereignty is a tremendous source of comfort to us. Because he is in control, he truly can work all things together for our good, exactly as he promises in Romans chapter 8. And that brings us to this week. Today we're going to be looking at the wrath of God. Of God. Again, as I said earlier, one of the most overlooked and misunderstood of all God's perfect attributes. But interestingly enough, God's wrath and his anger and his fury is referenced more in Scripture than his love and his tenderness. This means that exploring and understanding the wrath of God is a must if we truly desire to better know and understand him. And I think when we hear the word wrath, it's easy for us to kind of, to limit it, reduce it down to something that is, it seems beneath God, doesn't it? That he would be wrathful. Because we think of wrath as a loss of self-control, an outburst of irrational rage because of a wounded ego or or, or just a, a plain bad temper. And while these characteristics are true about our human wrath, God's wrath, as revealed in Scripture, is entirely different. As J. I. Packer writes in this book, Knowing God, he writes, God's wrath is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. Unlike human wrath, God's wrath is always 100% justified. He is only ever angered when and where anger is rightly called for. We have to kind of, we ask, you know, How could he be holy? How could he be morally perfect? How could he be good if he did not react adversely to evil, right? And I think deep down, we all actually want a God who is angered when anger is rightly called for. I mean, even most atheists conclude that if there was a God, 
it would be necessary for him or her to be wrathful because even atheists have an inner sense of justice that cries out against the atrocities of Hitler's Holocaust and and Paul Pot's reign of terror and every other act of terrorism and genocide. It's interesting that every tribe and nation and culture on the planet agrees wrath is necessary. Punish, punishment is, is, is good. It is right. An, an interesting side note, apologetic. It's like if all of the cultures of the world agree upon this, this moral law that's intrinsic to our hearts, where do we think we got this moral law except for a divine moral law giver? Chance certainly did not work this out. It's not survival of the fittest that we should you know, believe in and, and, and pursue punishment when, when a wrong has been done. That's not survival of the fittest, end of commercial. If you have ever suffered an injustice that has yet to be resolved, the wrath of God will be of comfort to you. Maybe your heart aches for the countless children who are enslaved by human traffickers around the world, the wrath of God will be a comfort to you. Turning the tables now toward ourselves, maybe you've been depleted of evangelistic zeal. Maybe you've lost the sense of urgency that the world around us is dying. A forever death. The wrath of God should be a motivator for you this morning. And maybe... Like me, you've fallen prey to a casual acceptance of sin in your life. The wrath of God should serve conviction to you. The wrath of God addresses all of these things and more. So let's turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Psalms. And we're going to read today's passage the words of Israel's famous King David, beginning in verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O oh Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. 
My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, help me. Help us. Holy Spirit, take your word and sink it deeply into our hearts. Let us know you and understand you to the best of our capacity, to the best that, God, you would allow. Let us see you and savor you in your word today. Let us celebrate and and fix our eyes on an attribute that is not normally brought to the surface and to the limelight. And God, let us find mercy and grace even there in the wrath of God and, and comfort and help in time of need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I worked um, on household staff for a very wealthy man and his family in New Albany, just outside of Columbus. And one day I was supposed to make a delivery on the other side of the city. This was before smartphones were, you know, GPSs ready to be used. And I got lost. I got straight up lost in Columbus for like several hours. (laughs) And by the time I got back to the house, one of my superiors, one of my bosses, had already started a rumor that I was out milking the clock. I was out wasting time on my boss's wallet. He was a a senior employee of mine, and, and, and he was the head of my department, and his words certainly counted more than mine. And while I didn't get fired for this, I did feel a sense of betrayal and loneliness and misunderstanding. In a very small way, I felt victimized. In a very small way. There was a sense of injustice about the whole ordeal. I'm sure you have all experienced something like this. In a small way, this is essentially what is happening in Psalm chapter 7. King David is writing this prayerful song to the Lord concerning the malicious, slanderous words of a former friend named Cush, a fellow Israelite man. We don't know really anything about Cush, but some scholars think that he was an ally of King Saul's and that he had taken up arms, so to speak, against David. But whatever the case, it's clear in this psalm, in the reading of this psalm, it's clear that David feels betrayed and alone and misunderstood. He feels the victim of gross injustice. And the occasion leads David to reflect 
on the evils of sin and wickedness. To ponder God's just and righteous wrath that is being stored up and will one day be poured out on those who love evil and sow wickedness. And so these aren't my immediate points, but what I hope we see a bit later in Psalm 7 is that Psalm 7 serves as a warning to the unrepentant. It serves as an invitation into repentance, and it serves as a comfort, like I said earlier, to those who have been on the receiving end of injustice. God's wrath is a comfort to victims of unbridled gossip, victims of domestic abuse and terrorism, and victims of systemic greed and classism and racism and sexism. On account of these things, Paul writes in Colossians 3, the wrath of God is coming. So it's critically important that we understand to the best of our ability the wrath of God. And so I'd like to consider how Psalm 7 reveals to us two simple things. I have two points this morning. Number one, we're going to look at what it is. What the wrath of God actually is. We're going to observe the passage and define wrath. And then we're going to look at what it means. What the implications are. What the wrath of God means for us today. Why it's important. So, title of my sermon, The Wrath of God. We're going to look at what it is and what it means. We're going to keep this super simple. So let's look at what it is. Number one. After David brings to the Lord these false accusations that have been hurled at him by Cush in verses 1 through 5, David writes in verses 6 through 7, I'm going to reread it. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, even, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now he's referring to this situation, an uprightness of heart in this situation. Cush is accusing David of doing or saying things, and David is saying, judge me, Lord, if I have done this. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So in these verses, David calls to God as a judge one who knows the hearts and minds and intentions of everyone on earth and who weighs them according to his own perfection and righteousness. David is calling out in verses 6 through 11 to a righteous God whose righteous anger burns, he says, every day against those who love evil. And so we're going to get into the definition here. See, because God is holy, because he is utterly, morally pure and set apart in perfect righteousness, he hates all evil and all sin. And because he hates all sin, his anger therefore burns against those who give themselves to sin. I love this definition provided by A.W. Pink. 
The wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. I'll say that again. The wrath of God is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is his right and necessary reaction to evil. His wrath is his eternal detestation of all that is unrighteous. God is angry against sin because sin, by nature, is in rebellion against his authority. We see the wrath of God first revealed in Scripture in the Garden of Eden. We remember the story, right? After Adam and Eve rebel against his authority, after they disobey his command, after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God reacts to their evil in a right and necessary way. For their cosmic treason, he issues a death sentence. But he doesn't, in his mercy, put them to death right on the spot, does he? He simply, he, he would have been justified in doing so, but he simply places a limitation on their lives that previously was not there. And from, ne- from that point on, throughout all of human history, human beings will not only have a birthday, but a death day. Because the wages of sin is death. God is very serious about sin. The wrath of God is also revealed in how he expels them from the paradise of his presence. They have to leave the garden. They cannot be around a holy God. They will be burned alive. We see the wrath of God in Cain's banishment after he murders Abel and the flood and at Babel and at Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. One commentator mentioned that the Bible could actually be called stories of the wrath of God, which is on one side funny and on another side so sobering. And time and time again throughout the meta-narrative of Scripture, what we see is that the Lord is never unprovoked in His wrath. God's wrath is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that our wrath is. It's always 100% justified. He is only ever angered when and where anger is rightly called for. His wrath is His righteous response to unrighteousness. We see it in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What that passage tells us and how it comes home for us is that when we sin, every time we sin, it is, is, it is as if we are putting a big, thick blanket over God, so to speak, and pretending that he's not there so that we can think and speak and act in whatever manner pleases us as the, as the gods we're trying to make ourselves. Every time we sin, we suppress the truth of his existence and his goodness and his authority Pretending that God is not God and that we are God and that we can and should be able to do whatever it is we please. So husbands, when we verbally abuse or God forbid emotionally, physically abuse 
our wives, God's wrath is stirred. When the dictators of the world get rich off of relief funding, I think of Cambodia, how Hun Sen is just living in this palace. It's all money coming in, and nobody, God's, God's wrath is stirred. When a mother and father callously decide, callously to abort their baby, God's wrath is stirred. When politicians lie to get elected, God's wrath is stirred. When students who are here cheat on a test and, and, and represent themselves dishonorably before their teachers, God's wrath is stirred against that. When professing Christians ignore injustice, even here in Worcester, when we neglect the poor and the widow and the orphan, and when we refuse to call sin, sin, God's wrath is stirred. It's stirred. When day after day and week after week and month after month, we professing Christians continue with no striving, continue to walk and embark in the same cycles of sin that we have for decades without any sanctified effort by the power of the cross, without any groping for accountability, for help, for strength within the body to fight and to make war against sin when we just give in apathetically to cycles of sin, God's wrath is stirred. Let's look at what that means, point two. What are the implications of this wrath? We have opposed God and he has rightly gathered and anger about it. There are three implications, three meanings um, that I see in this text, among others, but the first is, is a warning. In verses 12 through 16, we read that if a man or a woman does not repent, God will wet his sword. He will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and then falls into the hole that he has made. The wicked man's mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. When we sin, created beings... We stand in flagrant opposition to the Creator God. Our sin makes us enemies with Him. And without repentance, what David is trying to dial into here in verses 12 through 16, without repentance, we enable ourselves to continue on as the recipients, as the worthy recipients of His just wrath that will be poured out either in this life in some measure or for sure in the next. And the way God pours out his wrath now in this time, in this life, is that he limits our age. We have, we have toil in the field. Remember the curse in Genesis 3? We strive, we're susceptible to sickness. We are futile. These are the ways that God's wrath manifests here in this life and then, God forbid, in the one to come, 
God's wrath manifests that he sovereignly allows us to have what we most want, which is separation from him and eternal damnation. God forbid. Because with each passing day, countless men and women who are our neighbors here in Worcester and co-workers and who eat at the cafeteria tables with us at school continue to walk in suppression of the truth, who continue to ignore God's command to turn from their sin and to turn back toward him, seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. With each passing day, God, the righteous judge, is storing up his indignation. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is slow to anger. Thank God for that. Abounding in steadfast love. Thank God. He forgives iniquity and sin. Thank God. But he will by no means clear the guilty. By no means will he clear unrepentant, hard-hearted sinners. Sinners who will be, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day when he comes to be glorified by his holy people. God intrinsically, innately must react to evil in this way or he would cease to be morally perfect. He would cease to be holy. Do we understand this, church? So if you are here, friends, brother or sister, if you're here and you sense in your spirit that you have been suppressing the truth of God, that you in fact, maybe you wouldn't call it this, but, but that you in fact have worshipped yourself as God, orienting your life around your decrees and ideals and priorities instead of God, You've worshipped yourself as God. If you are here and that is you, I would urge you, heed the warning. You stand diametrically opposed to the creator who created you, usurping his authority moment by moment, day after day after day. And right now, he is kind and patient, giving time that all of his people would come to repentance. It's a desire of his. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. At that point, when Jesus returns, it is finished. You will get what you are demonstrating you most want right now, which is a godless, empty vacuum forever and ever. In this text is also an invitation. Not just a warning, it's an invitation. J.I. Packer writes, In the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul is concerned to force people, in light of God's wrath, he's concerned to force this question upon people. If the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and if a day of wrath is indeed coming, 
when God will render to every man and woman according to their deeds, how can any of us escape such a disaster? After all, the book of Romans makes it absolutely clear that all of us are under sin. There is no one that is righteous, not even one, Romans 3.21. Is there any way of deliverance for us from the wrath that is to come? Is there any means of pardon? Yes. Yes, thank God. Thank God. By the blood of Jesus Christ, who came to earth as a human being to live the righteous life that none of us did, even though he was tempted to sin in every way, he remained obedient perfectly righteous before God the Father. But then instead of being lauded and celebrated for such righteousness, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he took our unrighteousness upon himself. He became our sin and rebellion. And then he received the due punishment for iniquity, which is death and separation from God. He, Jesus, paid the penalty for our sin. He faced the hell of separation from the Father on the cross when the Father turned his face away as he was pouring out his wrath on Jesus. He couldn't even bear the sight of this horrible wretch on the cross. Jesus was put to death and buried in a tomb. But because he is Lord, the Son of God, death could not hold him. Three days later, he rose again and he ascended back to heaven. And now his Holy Spirit is inviting you, you, to respond to him by faith, to be united with him, meaning his life becomes your life, his death becomes your death. His fulfillment of the punishment becomes our fulfilled punishment and then his resurrection life becomes our promise of eternal life with him. By grace, he is inviting us to believe that the righteous life he lived, he did so in our place. Brother or sister, if you're hearing me, in your place and the, the death he died, he died in your place. In the resurrection life that brought him forth out of the tomb, he, he was brought forth out of the tomb in your place if by faith you are united with him. He simply invites us to repent and believe that he has accomplished everything needed for our forgiveness and our justification. Do you believe that? This is the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 5, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Jesus? So if you're here and you've never repented from your sin and you've only ever truly trusted in yourself, 
I urge you to look at your life. Holy Spirit, bring conviction. I ask you to search and to trust in Jesus because if you don't, you are at present standing in direct opposition to a holy, wrathful God. We ought to ask as David did in verses 3 through 5. He essentially says this before the Lord, if, if I have sinned, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend or, or, or anyone with evil, reveal it to me, Lord. Because if I have, I deserve to be trampled on the ground and returned to dust. David acknowledges that the wages of his sin is death, but in bringing it to the Lord in confession and repentance and trust, the Lord saves him. And there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is now no more wrath that is being stored up for those who trust in Christ. All of it, all wrath for those who are in, united in faith with Christ, all of that wrath was poured out on the Son. There is not a drop of it left. There's a reason why Jesus declared with utter finality, it is finished. In Christ alone who took on flesh, the fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness was scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Hallelujah. Here in the death of Christ I live. How's that for a paradox? In the death of Christ I now live. The third implication, one minute left, of what it means, this wrath of God, is comfort. I hinted at it at the beginning and throughout. Verse 1, David comes to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. David can come to the Lord with great comfort knowing that God sees, God knows all of the injustices of the world, all of the things that have yet to be brought to the surface, all, all of the things that will remain unpunished in this life. God sees them, church. And he will by no means clear the guilty. And for the victims of injustice, we have promises such as Psalm 147 that he will personally heal our brokenheartedness and he will bind up our wounds. Because Jesus too is the victim of gross injustice. And David foresees this. He was given many prophecies about this. And ultimately this comfort of God's wrath leads him to worship in verse 17. Only someone who truly understands wrath would say, after all of this, I'll give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Let's pray. There is just no other prayer that I can pray, Lord, when I'm finished preaching. Have mercy on my brothers and sisters and allow them to completely forget all of the words that are mine and, Lord, to completely savor 
the words that are yours. I pray, God, that we would come to understand and know you more. This facet of the diamond of your character, this wrath, should warn us that unrepentant sin will not be cleared, but it should invite us into the gospel of grace that says, for those united in faith with Christ, that wrath has been absolved. Our iniquity has been cleared. And Lord, it should give us comfort for any and all of us who are here who are wrestling with injustice, whether our own or whether the injustice that happens in the world, let us find great comfort knowing that you see it all and you will repay. And in the meantime, Lord, let it fire us up with urgency and with zeal to go and proclaim the gospel message to the lost that they would be found and rescued from what is to come. Give us all of these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.